Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Do we pay enough attention to cyber resilience and to what happens after a cyber attack? Most organizations, and almost certainly all CISOs, accept that cyber attacks will happen. But there is still relatively little effort focused on recovering from an attack or on limiting the impact a cyber attack will have on day-to-day business. In fact, some research suggests that we're even going backwards. According to the UK government's latest cybersecurity breaches survey, investment in some of the basic cybersecurity and information security hygiene measures has actually declined. And the problem is made worse when organizations fail to put in place the training and awareness to make sure everyone in the business follows cyber best practice. Our guest today is Stephen Farnell, Professor of Cybersecurity at Nottingham University, a senior member of the IEEE, and he's also been working on the government's cybersecurity breaches survey itself. What then should we do to operate in a world where cyber attacks are endemic? I started by asking Professor Fennell to summarise the findings of the government's cybersecurity breaches survey and what they tell us about attitudes to security. There are a couple of things, to be honest, and I think one of the, I suppose, the headline things is that this is the first time in several years we've seen the the results from organisations indicating that security is a high or fairly high priority for them actually falling away. We've seen it sort of go up from about, let's say, around 70% up into the 80s in previous releases of the survey, but now it's dropped again. And if we look at the detail of the results, what that's particularly telling us, it's not, it's not dropped in priority as claimed by the large organisations, but it's the smaller ones and perhaps particularly micro-organizations where they're now, at least from what the results tell us, potentially taking their eye off the ball a bit with security, perhaps because of other pressures, economic downturn, post-pandemic, et cetera. But nonetheless, this is you know, potentially significant because these organizations are out there. They form part of other people's supply chains. And so we're potentially seeing, based on that suggestion, less attention being given to this issue. And then if we look in a little bit more detail at some of the underlying results within the survey, and one that always catches my attention is the percentage of organizations taking actions in particular areas. So you've got the NCSC's 10 steps to cybersecurity. And one of the questions um, or one of the findings from the survey tries to map uh, the responses from other parts of the questionnaire to indicate are the respondents taking fundamental steps in each of these 10 areas. And it's a very mixed picture. So for example, three quarters of organizations are perceived to be doing something in terms of taking notice of their architecture and configuration. Um, and it's it's a much larger percentage if we just look at large businesses, almost all of them, 96% there. But if we look at something like, for example, uh, training or engagement and training, so have they carried out some sort of staff awareness raising activity around cybersecurity for the general staff population during the last 12 months, the overall average is just 18%. And again, it's it's far more pronounced in large businesses. It's three quarters of them there. But that suggests that, again, in the smaller organizations, evidence is perhaps less attention being given to this issue. And that, in its turn, raises questions about, okay, so what's the resulting vulnerability, resulting risk that might be arising from that? 
Do we have any information from underlying data behind that which might suggest actually that this is not as bad as it looks? So one reason it might not be as bad as it looks would be if organisations had invested in prior years and now they are continuing to derive the benefits from those investments. They don't need to buy new firewalls this year because they put them in one, two years ago. Is there any credence in that? To a degree in some of the areas, so perhaps in terms of some of the technical controls, we could make that assumption. But certainly if we were to look at the example I just gave around the edu- uh, the engagement and training, if I could pronounce it properly, um, that one is a fairly consistent result from year to year. Um, the, only a relatively small proportion have done something in the last 12 months. And if that's been the picture building up, let's say, for the fa- past five years, it's not really a case that they can rely on previous activity and investment to see them through there. No, and that is one of those things that needs constant attention, if not necessarily constant spending. Absolutely. Because again, the I think particularly with the people side of things, the message needs to be refreshed, um, presented in different ways. It needs to be presented to people who've joined the organisation since the last time any sort of awareness raising campaign was run, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, you can't rely on that um, being a a one-off or a we did it a few years ago and so we're, we're suitably safe as a result. So if we're working on the basis that this is not simply a cyclical trend or evidence of a cyclical trend in spending, what might be the reasons that organisations are spending less? I mean, is it really a question of they don't think it's as much of a priority or is it they just haven't got cash to do it, haven't got the resources to do it right now? I think it's far more likely to be the second one. As I mentioned before, we've got the, you know, the context of the you know, the economic downturn, etc. So money is tighter. There are competing priorities. And I think cybersecurity sort of, for, unfortunately, seems to be one of those things where unless you've got a pressing need to address it because you're facing an incident, you've had something actively go wrong, then it's something that perhaps people think to themselves that, well, this is something we've not we've not experienced. We, we seem to be okay. We're managing. We're getting along with things. And so perhaps that isn't as pressing as something that directly needs to be spent to buy a new thing, to engage a new service, whatever. But when you highlighted cyber hygiene within that research, that is quite worrying, isn't it? Because these are generally things that don't cost anything except time. As long as you have some people with some level of skill, and we should have those skills through programs such as Cyber Essentials, Things like restricting admin rights, ensuring correct, strong passwords, passwords are changed regularly, and so on. None of that actually requires heavy investment in in systems or, or technology. It doesn't, but it or not necessarily, but it still does require somebody within the organisation to have that on their mind, to have the skills in place, or to have engaged external parties to actually address this for them. Again, if it's not recognised, if it's not on the on the radar in the first place there is a chance that even though they are the relatively low-hanging fruit things that can be done in terms of of safeguards, they still can have the potential to get overlooked. And yes, that was another element within the the survey this time around, a reduction of these basic cyber hygiene aspects. There are some positives in the research around engagement with boards and governance, because it seems to indicate that managers and boards are paying more attention. The NCSC have put out its board toolkit and awareness of that has risen, for example. So uh, the the messages are getting through. Is it your view that they're not getting through quickly enough and to enough people, though? I think, yeah, certainly to enough people, because, yes, there are, as you say, the NCSC's board toolkit. That's been refreshed recently. That There's there's certainly the resources available for, for organisations to take and to utilise and to raise awareness amongst those those groups that need it. But again, it's it's recognising that those resources are there and having the opportunity to put them into practice. 
And so, yes, it, it's it's getting more people to understand that this is something that ought to be on their agenda. If we move on to putting this in context, though, we have this constant idea that there's more threat actors out there. There are more organizations willing to take advantage of insecurity within cyberspace, whether they're government organizations, whether they are military, whether they are criminal groups, people just taking a chance, really. Are we seeing a shift in the way that for example, crime is conducted, a potentially a permanent shift where there will be either more crime because we've got new types of crime such as ransomware or crime shifting from, you know, say street crime, burglary, car theft to virtual crime, which is easier for the criminal, harder to prosecute and actually harder to defend against in many ways as well. I think probably the answer is yes to all of those things. I think we are seeing a shift because there are more, ever more opportunities for criminal activity to occur in this context. We progressively become, as organisations and indeed individuals, more dependent on the technology and services that we're using in all dimensions of, of business and even personal lives. And so, yeah, there are increasingly the opportunities for, for criminal activity to take place there. You mentioned ransomware, fraudulent activities, those things. I mean, fraud has existed for ages, of course, but we've got new guises and new routes to committing it within the, the cyberspace context. Ransomware is a new threat that arises particularly because of the opportunity um, for the criminals around the technology and what they can do as a result of it. The, the notion of easier well i suppose certainly in some cases less risk um, or at least the perception of less risk for the perpetrator because they're they're remote from what they're doing there's no there's no physical um, contact with the, the victims etc and it's a question of reach as well so you know it, you talked about street crime and burglary and things like that that is something that the perpetrator needs to be physically there and there's a certain geography within which they can be active uh, to do that. Here, you've got a global reach for, for whatever it is you're trying to perpetrate. And also access to the tools. And if you look at conventional crime, yes, we have seen stubborn levels of knife crime in our big cities in the UK. It's very hard for the authorities to deal with that. But as you suggest, it's quite localised. Whereas it's still quite easy to buy a knife, it's quite hard to buy a firearm, and therefore, say, to commit a robbery with that, but it is very easy to obtain any form of malware. It's very easy to obtain a zero day if that's your thing and you know how to operate. And there are plenty of organizations out there or individuals out there who are willing to distribute those, find those, or even craft them for nefarious purposes, whether that's for, for criminal groups, governments, or, or others. Does that access to the tools and the fact that, you know, you're not going to get stopped on the street and searched and be found in possession of a zero day, but if you're found in possession of a bladed weapon, you're going to be in a lot of trouble? Yeah, so again, it's a difference, and it's... Um... Yeah, that whole thing that the there's the availability of, of the tools, as you mentioned, there's the marketplaces within which, well, you can get the tool, you can get somebody to create something for you, you can get somebody to launch the attack. It's it's you know, whatever somebody is willing to pay for, essentially, in that context. And uh, I think there's also a difference on the, the side of the potential victims in terms of levels of awareness again. So you, you mentioned around knife crime and, you know, burglary and things of this nature. Yeah, in the physical world, we sometimes have a sense of where the more, let's say, dangerous areas to be are and the the, the physical 
measures that we can take or the behavioral measures we can take to safeguard ourselves. Again, depending on the nature of the organization, quite often determined by size and sector, we don't see that level of general, let's call it streetwiseness, um, that we perhaps have in the physical context. We know if we've got a physical premises, that if we want to protect it, well, there's things we can have like locks and alarms and things of that nature. And it's long established. We we know to lock a door when we leave and, and leave a place empty, et cetera. Of course, there are various technology, uh, technological safeguards and, and other you know, procedural aspects that we no, or there is the opportunity to be doing in the cyber context, but the awareness of those and the practice of those, um, again, as the survey results suggest, is not quite so widespread. And that is one of the difficulties because it requires constant education. And that education, there is education out there. That's what you do as part of your role. It's what I do as part of my role. There are lots of other people working within it, but it's not reaching everybody. And even within the business context or the organizational context, and interestingly, the government research calls out the charity sector as uh, quite often actually as an area that seems to need some further attention. But whether that's in government, whether that's in industry, whether that's in the not-for-profit sector, there are gaps in understanding and capability. What should we be doing to try to close those gaps and to ensure that that awareness is really rising so that you don't go into that internet dark alley, whether as a individual or as an organization? Well, I think it's, there's multiple elements to it because, of course, raising awareness doesn't in itself raise capability to take action as a result. So what we need is not only more organized, more businesses, more organizations to be aware that something needs to be done. We then need the opportunity and the routes for them to get support to be able to do it. And so, again, with the in the context of the larger organizations where we tend to see the, the better results coming through, one can assume that, OK, they've got very likely some in-house capability, whether it's directly in cybersecurity or more generally in terms of the technology aspect. But they're likely to have some people who understand what the guidance um, that they're, they're then seeing actually means and how it might be taken forward. Whereas if we point the small organizations towards the same sort of guidance, they might not have even you know, the necessary understanding of really what that's telling them or how the guidance maps into well, what, what steps ought we now to be taking within the business. So at the moment, they then need to go and pay for somebody else to actually support them in that. And that potentially is one of those areas where facing financial constraints, they don't have the opportunity to do so. That's very true. And also, as well as capabilities, it's that knowledge, the base knowledge to be a good customer. Where do you go for a cyber audit? Where do you go to accredit your people if you have a team that needs to be accredited? There are lots of accrediting bodies out there. You know, do you use ISO as a framework? Do you use something else as a framework? Do you use NIST? You know, there, there are so many different things out there, and to some extent, the industry is its own worst enemy because we've got lots and lots. We've got almost a you know pick and mix of solutions out there, but very little advice for the smaller business for the individual on what's actually effective no i do agree with that i mean you mentioned frameworks and things of that nature and different reference points and you see this continual emergence of new things that are addressing parts of the the same space i so tend to refer to it as everybody's inventing their own version of the wheel somehow claiming theirs is rounder than the other person's but what it's doing ultimately it creates that confusion in the you know the initial landscape for somebody looking to to, to determine well what are what does cybersecurity actually mean? What are the areas, the topics within it that I ought to be addressing or my organization ought to be addressing? And how do I know if I've done it effectively in a holistic way, for example? And yeah, the, if you look at 
ISO, you know, the 27001 sort of framework, and then the controls in 27002, that will tell you one thing. If you were to look at NIST, as you mentioned, that will tell you another. If you were to look at something like Cyboc, that will tell you quite a lot of information about you know, what cybersecurity is and the different knowledge areas. But again, it's cut up differently to the other two reference points. And so there's a significant degree, of, if you're trying to form your own picture, how you, how you create that and map it in a way that makes sense. And as an academic and a representative of the IEEE, do you have a feeling that some of this proliferation of qualifications, of accreditations, of frameworks and so on is actually unhelpful because it just leads to confusion among the people who actually need to put it into practice. Well, I don't want to say it's unhelpful because, of course, each of those, if we talk about the, the landscape of certifications, each of them is there offering a particular thing and fulfilling, a, a let's assume, an appropriate market need because otherwise, you know, essentially they wouldn't be offering it, they wouldn't be getting custom against it. And so if you look at any individual certification, it has a role to play, I would suggest. But yes, the, the end result is nonetheless potentially confusing if you're well, an individual trying to determine what would be useful to you in terms of career progression, What's the what's the thing that the market is looking for? Well, often the market doesn't know. And there are certain certifications that, that uh, seem to have uh, come to the surface, the, uh, the, some of the leading ones, you know, that they, they cover perhaps the more general aspects of cybersecurity. And they become, in a sense, I think, more popular because they become popular, so to speak. You see lots of uh, adverts and recruitment looking for people holding particular certifications. So that encourages more people to take them, which you know, the, the, the wheel keeps turning, so to speak. Doesn't necessarily mean they're always the, the most appropriate certifications, knowledge and skill sets for what a particular role might need. But it's not necessarily a bad thing that there's diversity there. No, I think we need to have some choice. I think the, the problem is navigating through it. And if, if you are sort of coming to it totally green, so to speak, it is a complex landscape to see, okay, if I want to get some appropriate skills, and I say pen testing, forensic investigation, whatever it might be, um, risk assessment, where do I go? What are the options? What are the prerequisites? And it takes a bit of working out um, to see. I mean, there are, there are, however, some things emerging, things like the work from the UK Cybersecurity Council with careers frameworks and things of this nature that are hopefully going to help to guide people, particularly as they mature, um, you know, the frameworks mature, to, to help people make a bit more sense of it than perhaps is the case at the moment. Now, we were talking before we started the podcast about whether cyber risk and cyber threats have now become endemic in our society and in our economy. So like we alluded to when we were discussing crime a moment ago, there's a permanent change that because we're doing so many more things online, and, and that generally speaking is a good thing, there's going to be inherent risk within that. That's not going to go away. There isn't, despite all the tools and techniques and procedures that are out there, there isn't something that can magic all these problems away. There isn't something that is simply going to deter people from misusing the internet. Therefore, we need to change our approach. Do you think we do need to now accept that this is part of the fabric of society? It's an endemic. Just as with COVID, we've had to learn to live with it. We have to learn to live with cyber risk. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's not going to go away. Um, the, the technology, for as long as we've had it, has had some level of vulnerability um, and people using the technology, people um, implementing it, you know, putting it into place, setting it up, and then the, the, the sort of the general 
end user side of it. There's potential vulnerabilities at all levels, and there's people actively trying to exploit what's there for you know, their own gain, their own benefit, whatever. And so there's people looking for the vulnerabilities and there are vulnerabilities to find. And there are certainly things we can do to reduce vulnerability, both on the technical and the, the people and organizational side of things, but that's still not going to give us 100% protection. And you know, to be quite frank about it, the evidence suggests that we're quite a long way from that holistic approach being taken in the majority of organizations anyway. So vulnerability seems to have the likelihood of increasing in that context as more and more things are done and we're we're dependent on it in more contexts. And that's why it's important that organizations look at how they're going to react to an incident and what actions they need to take post-incident. And I think that's something that you've been looking at as well. And whether that's something that needs to be addressed at a national or a policy or a government level, as well as by individual organizations. So if cybercrime or cyber threats are here to stay, and we think they are, we have to understand that it's not if you're going to be attacked, it's when. I know that might sound a bit trite. Plenty of people have been saying that over the years. But actually now putting that into practice and having concrete plans in place to limit the impact of a cyber incident and to recover from it. What do you think about that? Is that something we should be looking at? Well, again, I think so, because as, as you say, it, it quite often isn't. It's not a case of if, it's when. And it, to be honest, it's also not just the notion of being attacked, because you can have security breaches and you know, security incidents that come from other events. So we're not just talking about an organization falling victim to somebody actively trying to attack them. There are other things that can go wrong. I mean, we, we see quite regularly uh, reports of data leaks and things of that nature that haven't happened as a result of a a cyber attack happening to the organization. It happened as a result of error, et cetera, but it's still, ultimately, it's a security breach that the organization needs to make some response to. And so it's one of the fundamentals there, and it's another one that doesn't come out particularly well if you look at the, the cybersecurity breaches survey results, is the proportion of organizations that have got some sort of incident response plan in place. Um, and if I remember, it's, a, it's around a fifth of businesses overall. Obviously, it's it's again likely to be better in large organizations. I think it's around two-thirds of large organizations have uh, well, what the, the survey terms a formal incident response plan. So something clearly laid down, it's okay, if something happens, this is what we're going to do about it, and here's who's got responsibility, et cetera. But if, if we think about you know that context, that's a third of large organizations that haven't gone to that extent of planning. Which, which raises a fairly significant question mark about, well, what are they going to do then if something untoward happens for whatever reason? How do they know what to do? How do they know who to contact? How do they know what to report? How do they know how to manage relationships with stakeholders, customers, whoever it happens to be? And how do they know how to recover their systems if that's the sort of thing they need to do? Do they even know what systems they have to recover? Well, exactly. I mean, if, you, if, if it's not been... If it's not been given sufficient attention in advance, it all becomes a, a responsive thing, which is not necessarily the most straightforward, calm and planned context in which to have to deal with something. Well, exactly. And I'm not trying to be facetious there, but there are plenty of organisations that when you talk to the CIO and the CISOs admit that they do not have a full picture of where data assets are. They do not have a full picture of critical systems until someone starts to take them down. I know this is something that does require time and upfront investment, but having a fuller picture of your IT 
your digital assets, your information, and the interdependencies between them, that's probably a worthwhile investment because it doesn't just make you more resilient against cyber attack. It makes you more resilient against natural disasters and other outages and potentially could save money. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I fully agree with what you say about the assets. And again, the, that's another of the, the areas within the NCSE's 10 steps. Um, so asset management. And so within the survey, um, one of the, the questions that was sort of posed is around the proportion of organisations that have a list of what they would consider to be their critical assets. And again, it's not a very high percentage of organisations overall that do so. It's about a quarter. And Large businesses, again, about two thirds. So it's, you know, even amongst the large businesses, so you don't know what you've got then. Um, you're, and that's just, that's not just assets, that's critical assets. And it's easy for us as commentators to say, yes, do this, do that, it's spend time and effort or money on these things. But you've got to start somewhere. Where would you say that organisations, in particular CISOs, should start? Is it now the time to review what you've got, what you've been doing? Again, have a look at the breaches that you've recorded. And again, only I think about two thirds of companies were properly recording incidents that they had been impacted by. But where would you say you should start? Because it's very easy to run around and cover your ears and go, oh, this is all too complicated and horrible. And to some extent, you know, I sympathise with that point of view, especially if you've got lots of other pressures on the organisation, such as you know, dealing with rising costs and difficulties in recruiting staff, etc. No, and you're right. It's it's also very easy, as you say, for us to say this ought to be done because it's very easy to to make the statement rather more difficult for an organisation to actually take the steps to do so. But nonetheless, I think the starting point ought to be that the areas of basic cyber hygiene, as as we termed it earlier. I mean, looking at reference points such as cyber essentials because that that lays out some of the fundamentals there to to safeguard systems taking a little bit of a step further than that then something again like the the ncsc's 10 steps provides a pretty good sort of holistic reference for you know some baseline areas of control particularly in their view for the large and medium size organizations perhaps not so uh, straightforward for smaller and micro organizations to deal with all of them but if you look at the list of what's covered within the 10 steps i think it's it's hard to say that they're out of scope for for many or any organizations at least in some form and so there are some fairly baseline things that, that could be done against each of these i mean we're talking about things like vulnerability management appropriate configuration of systems understanding having some sense of understanding what the risk is within the context of your organization which as you say would involve things like reflecting on well what incidents have we experienced etc cetera, etc cetera, over time so yeah actually at least taking a step back and looking well where do we sit within these areas comparing it to the the incidents or the experiences that we've had and determining what ought to be areas of priority for for taking the first steps to improving things and lastly, you've been reviewing the survey that the government, the DCMS, puts out. Is it likely that they'll do these on a regular basis? Because it does seem quite a helpful tool to have at least some form of touch point around you know, where organisations are really at and the areas where they might be doing well and areas where they might have more to do. Yeah, so as far as I'm aware, this is something that's expected to be. Um, it's been, um, in the case of the Cybersecurity Breaches Survey, it's been an annual thing since 2016 now, if I remember correctly. And as far as I'm aware, this is this is expected to be the, the case moving forward with DCIT um, now rather than DCMS. Um, but if you look at the range of 
of other studies that that DCIT uh, produces. You've got things around the labour market, the cyber sector, skills, etc. So there, there's quite a number of interesting touch points now to see how cybersecurity as a, as a sector and also cybersecurity practice within the UK is developing. I mean, we've got the cybersecurity breaches survey. There's also the cybersecurity longitudinal survey, which is a, a study that's being done in three waves with a more consistent set of respondents. And so that's a particularly interesting one to see how things develop from year to year um, in terms of, of, of breaches and experiences. Professor Stephen Fennell on how cybersecurity best practice is developing in the UK and why it's important for organisations to know which systems they depend on and how to recover them if the worst does happen. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. In our next programme, we'll catch up again with Marie Wilcox, board member of CSEC and cybersecurity advocate at Panacea. She'll be talking about the cybersecurity skills gap and whether automation is a realistic way to solve the problem. You can listen to that from Thursday, October the 19th. Until then, do catch up on our past programmes on the website, securityinsights.co.uk, or subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening. Security Insights is written and presented by Stephen Pritchard and produced by ENS Media. For more information, visit us at www.ensmedia.co.uk forward slash podcasting.